morning again, church. I was just uh, kind of looking through some of the comments just a little bit as we were worshiping. I know I should have been worshiping, which I did, but I was also looking through some of the comments. And uh, Trisha Meinhold, hi Trisha, said that we should do a service outside. I think that would be an awesome idea. And so I'll just be praying for that. I think maybe we come back to an outside service, weather permitting. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. And and uh, I have to do this. My wife tells me don't, but I have to do this. I need a shout out to my granddaughters. Hi, Madeline. Hi, sweetheart. Hi, Aubrey. Hi, Finley. Okay. With that done, out of the way, let's uh, turn in our Bibles, if you would, to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14 this morning. Colossians 3, verse 12 through 14. Can, uh, can they hear the people mowing the lawn outside? No? Okay. <laughs> I, we hear the people mowing the lawn right now, so, uh, but uh, as long as you guys don't hear it, that's okay. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, we read, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. The title of my study this morning is Coronavirus Kindness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together online as your church, Lord. Knowing that you are with us, you are in our midst Holy Spirit, you are here to teach us, to instruct us in your word. We pray, Father, as we're sitting in our living rooms, in our family rooms, in our kitchen, listening to this, Lord, that we would be open to receive all that you have for us today. Father, that you would change our hearts in areas that need to be changed, encourage our hearts in areas that need to be encouraged, convict us, Lord, in areas that we need conviction, Uh, Lord, whatever it may be, Lord, we want to be open to the leading and the working of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, we do pray if there's anyone that is tuned in, that is listening to this, that's not born again. They've they've not come to you to have their sin forgiven. Lord, we pray that you would touch their heart, especially today. that They would see their need for you. They would turn from their sin and they would turn to you this morning. So we thank you for this time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we all make mistakes. And I, you know, I've read some of these one-liners about making mistakes. I thought were, was a little bit funny. This one goes, My wife asked me to pass her lip balm, but I gave her super glue by mistake. She's still not talking to me. There's another one. I'm giving you ten chances to laugh in between one-liners, which you don't do when you're here, but I, I, I mean, in my mind, I'm pretending you're laughing. Okay, next one. I got fired from my job at the cemetery yesterday. I made a grave mistake. I like that one. Finally, I've only got three, so one more. I accidentally went to Star Trek convention dressed as Chewbacca. It was a Wookiee mistake. Get it? Wookiee mistake. Listen, we all make mistakes. Like those jokes, Pastor Tom, that was a mistake. We say things we shouldn't. We do things without thinking. And oftentimes, in those situations, we offend people. I think this is especially true 
with dealing with this whole coronavirus pandemic and our attitudes that we can have towards one another. I find that people really have differences of opinions about the whole thing and it can be very uh, easy uh, to become very offensive and to not portray the love of Christ, not only to those in the world, but even to our own brothers and sisters in the Lord. We, we can be offensive. We could, you know, even with our own families. Because you really have two extreme uh, different views today. You have those that see no reason to be locked down the way we are, no reason to be quarantined, and they think this whole thing should be over, compared to those that are extremely fearful and think we should be quarantined until the fall of 2021. And then you have every idea in between those things. I saw a video of a lady taking off her mask in a grocery store so she could lick her fingers to, to open up the produce bags, the produce form. I'm thinking, that's not the way you do it. And then I also heard yesterday that if you go to a grocery store in California and you're not wearing a mask, people start yelling at you. Two extremes. There's a great post on social media, and I'm not sure who posted it, but the writer says this concerning the virus and getting back to some sort of normalcy in our lives. They write this. All of us need to calm down. Quit telling people who are financially struggling that they don't care about human lives. Quit telling people who are truly at risk of dying from this virus that they are cowering in fear. Remember that until you've walked in someone else's shoes, you should probably be careful in your judgments and subsequent harsh words. We don't have to choose an either-or proposition and fight. We could choose other ways to be. Examples include, but are not limited to, I think this may be too soon, so I will continue to shelter myself and pray, make masks, check on those who can't. Or, I really need to go back to work, so I will do so, but I will be careful and try to protect myself, my family, and those around me with healthy strategies. See how those positions allow each of us to do what we need to do and also respect those who are choosing differently, end quote. I like that. Basically, we all have different views of dealing with this coronavirus and so we need to have some coronavirus kindness. Especially, we as a church should not be those who are quick to criticize and quick to judge and, and not easily, uh, uh, you know, not quick to forgive. We need to be those that are merciful and graceful and forgiving. And here's why. There are those today that will only see you as your representative of Christ. They'll never open up a Bible. They'll never step foot into a church. But they will see your life via social media, via even social distancing or, or when this is all over, face to face. And we who call ourselves Christians, we are representing Jesus Christ. What do people see when they look at me? Do they see Christ? Especially when someone is mean to you or says something mean about you or posts something you disagree with. How do you respond? Well, the Bible tells us to, to pray for and love our enemies. Love them that persecute you because anyone can hate someone who hates them. But the Bible says... Pray for those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. What makes a real difference in, and where you gain the attention of those around you is when people are rude to you that you're still good to them. See, that's a perfect example of having Christ-likeness. 
of being a Christian. And that is our responsibility to the world that is watching us for them to see the genuine love of Christ. Again, to show them some coronavirus kindness. Not only those in the end of the world that don't know Christ, but to each other, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Because I think sometimes, even over this whole thing, within the church, we can be at each other. It's been said the church is the only place where they shoot their wounded, and it shouldn't be the case. Again, we are to be the example of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, what it truly means to be a Christian. Jesus said this in John thirteen thirty five: By this all will know you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And these verses really deal with our relationship with each other in Christ and how we're to put on Christ in His example of love and kindness and, and forgiveness. How if we're right in our relationship with Christ, we are going to be right in our relationship with other people. Because when I'm alone in the presence of God it is, is who I really am in the public. What I am before others should be an outflow of my relationship with Christ. Otherwise, my life is, is a phony. It, it's, it's hypocritical. I'm just playing the Christian. We're told in Proverbs 4, verse 23, to keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. The issues of life are your, your actions, your reactions, your, your words, relationship to God and each other. These can be pure or impure. They can depend on, on the, the condition of your heart. That's why we looked at last week, man, it's time to take the trash out. Get rid of the garbage in our lives. And we looked at those things, the fornication and uncleanness and passions and, and evil desires and covetousness and anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy language, lying to one another. Get rid of those attitudes. Get rid of those actions. Throw the trash out. So now we've taken it out. Now what do we do? Well, that's where we come to our text this morning. What do we, we, we bring in? What do we put on? This morning we're going to see how to put on proper clothes in verses 12 through 14. See, Paul is saying here, now that we're saved, now that we're in Christ, we need to put off the old clothes, the grave clothes you might call them. And we need to uh, put on the new clothes, the grace clothes. Put off those things of the flesh, put on those things of the spirit. Now if you're taking notes, I divided our study into just two points. Number one, who we are in Christ, and number two, what we wear in Christ. See, before we can put on these nice grace clothes, we need to see who first we are in Christ. And that's our first point, who we are in Christ. Look at verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Stop there for a moment. Paul begins with three descriptions of who we are in Christ. First and foremost, he says we are God's elect. That word elect means chosen by God. Now, immediately, uh, some of you might be saying, "Uh uh-oh, election. That's a, a dangerous topic. Man, we could talk on this for hours and hours. And it's true. It's been a doctrine that has divided Christians for centuries, and there's no end in sight to the controversies surrounding it. But let me touch on it for a moment. Election in Scripture has to do with God selecting out from a human race before creation those who are saved. It brings conflict within the church, though, when we try to reconcile free will with the sovereignty of God. Let me say that the Bible teaches both. God's sovereignty in selecting and man's free will in choosing. They are simultaneous 
truth. See, God has chosen you to be His elect. Now, before you get all excited and think that's because of some great thing that you've done or some great person you are that you or God elected you to be a believer in Jesus Christ, let me remind you of God's word to Israel as to why uh, you are the elect. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8 says this, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. Listen, the Lord didn't choose you because you're so good looking or because you're so lovable. He did me, of course, and, and, but not you. No, just kidding. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrated His love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God chose us. God saved us and set us apart, not because of who we were or who we are. We were all sinners. The reason God chose you and chose me is because of His great love for us. Now you may say, well, you know, He may not have chosen me. Well, how do you know? Well, I'm not a Christian. Well, why aren't you a Christian? Well, I don't know. I've never seen a need to be one. Well, do you want to be a Christian? No, then maybe He didn't choose you. But don't blame Him. You haven't chosen Him either. I mean, have you? And let me, let me assure you of this. He has never rejected anyone. But it does leave the choice up to you. Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So if you don't know if He's chosen you or not, uh, just accept Jesus Christ and you'll find out that He's chosen you. Pretty simple. Then you won't argue with it anymore because he chose you. So what's there to argue about if he's chosen you? But if you say, well, I don't want to accept him. Well, then you have a problem because he probably didn't choose you and you're really in bad shape. There's a famous illustration of these two truths and maybe you've heard of it before. It shows a person standing before a doorway. On the arch over the doorway, it is written, whoever will, let him come. Indicating your choice and free will. As a person passes through the doorway, it looks back over the archway, it's written, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, indicating God's selection and sovereignty. So I like Ephesians 1.4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And that brings us to the second thing of who we are in Christ. Number one, we're the elect of God. But also Paul says in verse 12 that, that we are, or secondly, we're, we're holy. We're holy. Now the word holy in the Greek is hagaio, which means to be set apart. God set you apart. He set you apart from the world. You are set apart to serve and honor God. Same way when you come into a marriage relationship, the two people are set apart to be together uh, for each other. You know, when I perform a wedding ceremony and have a couple recite their vows to uh, one another, it's reminding them that they are set apart exclusively for each other until death do us part. Our salvation sets a believer apart exclusively for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what would you think if after the wedding ceremony and after the wedding reception and, and you're having all the, the bride and groom, they've had all the dancing, they've had all the food. Now they're walking out the doors of the church and they're getting ready to, to go on their honeymoon. If, if, you know, all of a sudden the wife, instead of them getting into the same car, the wife takes off and goes in another car with, with the best man or someone else. Something wrong with that. 
Because they were supposed to be together, it would be horrible. Because they were set apart to be with each other, chosen to be together. And it's the same thing, it's true with Christians, who runs off and gets involved in the things of the world, or carnality, or the flesh. People say, well, you know, I just want to be happy. I have the right to be happy. Isn't, isn't, isn't my life isn't, isn't happy right now. I want something different. If I only was married, then I'd be happy. Or if I only wasn't married, then I'd be happy. If we only had kids, then I'd be happy. If we didn't have these kids, then I'd be happy. Listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting a happy life. I don't think anyone should get up in the morning and say, my goal today is to be a depressed person. It's fine if you want to be happy, but if you're living to be happy, you will never be happy. In fact, you'll find the people that, that, who chase after happiness are the least happy people around. But you see, here's what it comes down to. If you want to be happy, then seek to be holy. And happiness will come as a byproduct. Seek to be holy. Seek to be like Christ because God said, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11.44 but also seek to live holy for Christ. Seek to be like Christ and live for Christ. And as you live a holy life, you'll find that you are a happy person as a result. So we've been called to be set apart. We've been called to be holy to the Lord. Paul writes in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now this brings us to the third thing that we are in Christ. We see in verse 12 that we are called the beloved. I like that word, the beloved. We are loved. And knowing how much God loves us should cause us want to love all the more. The late Pastor Warren Wiersbe had said this, As a believer grows in his love for God, he will grow in his desire to obey Him and walk in the newness of life that he has in Christ. Listen, when, it, when an unbeliever sins, he's a, a creature breaking the laws of a holy creator and judge. But when a, a, a Christian sins, he's a, a child of God. And he's breaking the heart of a loving father. And as children of God, we need to be those that are so in love with our Lord that you would not want to do anything that would displease him. Love is the most uh, strongest motivating power in the world and the church should be the, the best example of God's love. You see, we who are in Christ, we are the elect, we are our holy and we are the beloved. Therefore, we need to act like it. The world needs to see this. And that brings us to our second point and that is what we wear in Christ. Point number two. Now, every now and then, not too often, I may hear from my wife, you are not going out of the house dressed like that. Lately, it's been, you know, you're not staying in the house dressed like that. It's been three days wearing the same thing. Sometimes, apparently, she doesn't think, you know, the things go well with the, what I'm wearing. I'm okay with that. You know, she kind of watches out for me. Remember, years ago, I used to make fun of those folks that get a little bit older and they start to dress a little differently and you I mean you go down to Branson Landing and you're walking around and you see some of these older guys with these Bermuda shorts on and they have these black socks that come up to their knees I think they call them hose and then they you know uh, uh, wear these dressed wingtip shoes with them and then they got the matching Hawaiian shirt standing next to his wife dressed the same way and I think who is dressing you 
How did you come out of the house like that? I think maybe you need to call the fashion police on you. That's what needs to happen. <laughs> Imagine having a fashion police. Hello, sir, I'm with the fashion police. What you're wearing, it, 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 it's hurting people's eyes. But you see, here's what I realize. The older I get, and as you get older, you just don't care. I realize you don't care. You're going to wear whatever's comfortable. Man, if these hoes are comfortable, I'm going to wear those. These, I'm, I'm going to wear those. Now, let me say this. That should be the direct opposite spiritually for the Christian. We need to be very concerned with putting on the proper clothing as Christians, especially with dealing with one another within the church. What is the proper clothing spiritually speaking? Well, look at verse 12. Paul says, put on Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Man, what an outfit. Let's break them down. First of all, Paul says, put on these grace clothes of tender mercy. That, that word mercy means to have a heart full of compassion. You know, our, our Lord, we, we read in, in Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. Jesus was always full of compassion, great in mercy towards the sick, towards the sinful, towards the needy. And Jesus went so far as to say this in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In other words, because you have been, you have received the tender mercies of God, you're going to want to extend those mercies to those around you. Because you've received it, you're going to want to give it out. And because you've extended it, you're going to receive it more and more for yourself. A good way to check if you've been closed with tender mercies is how you deal with those that may have sinned against you. What is your attitude towards them? Maybe it's someone who doesn't know the Lord at all, or maybe it's a brother sister in the Lord who's overtaken in a fault. How do you react? I mean, if your gut reaction is, I can't believe they did something like that. What is wrong with them? They are such a loser. I thank God I would never do anything like that. And if that's your reaction, that tells me something about you. You're not wearing the right clothes. They don't go together. You're clashing. You're hurting people's eyes. But if your heart is broken, and if you realize that God's Word says in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. If that's your heart, that tells me you have the right clothes on. That tells me that you are clothed with compassion and mercy. You're concerned and you want to see them get back on their feet again. See, here's what it comes down to. The more righteous a person is, the more merciful they will be. And the more sinful a person is, the more hurtful and critical they will be. The more righteous a person is, the more merciful they will be. The more sinful a person is, the more hurtful and critical they will be. So if you show me a person who is always condemning and always nitpicking and always critical, then that tells me that person is not walking closely with the Lord. And they need to check their clothing. What are they wearing? So put on tender mercies. Next, Paul says, put on the grace clothes of kindness. I say, especially coronavirus kindness. We need a lot more kindness today. Listen, this is especially true when we see how kind God has been to us. We're going to want to put on that garment of kindness. 
It's been said that kindness is the only language that the blind can see and the deaf can hear. What is the greatest act of kindness that's ever been shown to us? Jesus taking upon Himself our sin. Jesus removing that separation between us and God and giving us new life in Christ. I love Romans 2.4. Do you not think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So, if Jesus is so kind to us, then we ought to be clothed with kindness towards one another. It's been said, kindness is grace in action, grace made visible by our actions. Next piece of grace clothing we're to put on, verse 12, Paul says, humility. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility. It's interesting, in ancient Greek, the word for humility was a derogatory term. It means low-mindedness, groveling, servanthood. In other words, the Greeks really had no place for humility in, the, in their language. It was looked upon as a bad thing to have. Yet God says in His Word, it is a must. You've got to have it. Put on humility means to put the needs of others above yourself. And sadly, we live in a culture where we're more like, like the Greeks. Look out for number one. What's in it for me? I heard one man say jokingly, what the world needs today is more geniuses with humility. There are so few of us left. Listen, pride is the opposite of humility. Pride is the great separator. It divides close friends. It causes God's people to, to leave churches. It causes separation between man and God. It strips away all the godly clothes we're, to be, we're told to be putting on. See, if you're lifted up with pride, you're not going to be showing tender mercy. If you're lifted up with pride, you're not going to be showing kindness and compassion. I mean, all after all, pride is Satan's greatest sin. It got him kicked out of being one of the chief angels as he wanted to be worshipped as God and then took the same sin and then he tempts Eve with it there in the garden. You shall be as God, Satan promised Eve. She believed him. Pride is one of the chief weapons in his warfare against the saints and against the Savior. God wants us to be humble. Satan wants us to be proud. In God's economy, the way up is down. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. He will lift you up. James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now understand, you can't conjure up, or I should say, you can conjure up a false humility. But know that the Lord sees right through that. I can say, well, you know, I'm not really any good at playing the piano as I look for someone to say, oh yeah, no, you're, you're really pretty good at it. And that's not a public confession. I'm not looking for a compliment. Besides, usually when I say I'm not very good at playing the piano, some people say, well, at least you admit it. <laughs> that's good to know. But you get my point. Humility is not something that we use to draw sympathy for yourself so that you can have a pity party and so people can come around and go, oh, you know, you're such a lowly person and you're, oh, you know, you're such a humble person and uh, you're such a wonderful person. True humility forces you to consider what you really are. A poor, wretched sinner saved by grace through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice upon the cross. True humility is to know who you are and knowing whose you are. We are nothing apart from Christ. 
So how are we to live? Well, Paul writes this in Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Again, so opposite our culture today. Paul is saying, clothe ourselves in humility. And the way to do that is to become a servant. Seek to serve others around you. Look how you can bless others around you. How you can lift them up. And serve them willingly, joyfully, quietly, lovingly. And I was thinking about this. You know, you, you should you do, sometimes you like to do, buy the groceries for people. You know they have need and you put the groceries on the porch and ring the doorbell and, and you can run. You, you start doing that with toilet paper. Just buy a couple rolls, ring the doorbell and run. A whole new meaning for toilet paper in someone's house. Listen, if you're a person that struggles with pride, look around you and find others that need a hand and help them. Help them. If we are practicing true humility, then we'll naturally be looking for ways to help others. With that, Paul tells us the next piece of grace clothing we need to put on is that of meekness. Now, meekness can be confusing for a lot of people because they assume or they link together meekness and weakness. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The word meek means strength under control. Actually, in the Spanish culture, that's the true meaning of the word macho. Strength, elegance, gentleness under control. Now, it's used to describe a, a huge hulking ox being gently directed uh, by the yoke. An ox is, is meek. Ox is controlled. The ox can be controlled by the direction of the will of the master. Man, this describes the, the Christian who is gently directed and guided by the Holy Spirit. You see, if you're a meek person, you may have the ability uh, to, 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 to hurt someone, but you choose not to. That's strength under control. Jesus was described as meek and mild. Doesn't mean he was weak. Far from it. Who was stronger than our Lord? I mean, I think of the, the money changers there in the temple, these heavy, heavy tables, and he's going in, and he's tipping them all over, and he's driving everybody out from there. The Bible says he was reviled, yet he did not revile back. They, they pulled his beard from his face, they, they crucified him, yet he did not strike back. He gave us an example to follow in humility and meekness and dealing with others in gentleness. And really, meekness goes back to, to humbling ourselves. Sometimes it means going to a person and saying, look, I don't know how I've wronged you in some way or, or, or if I've done something to harm you or if you think I've done something to harm you, but let's try to work this out. Let's try to, to deal with this. Even if you're thinking, I am so right in this case and they are so wrong, I could crush them right now. See, that's where humility comes in. Does that, listen, I don't know who's right and who's wrong, but, but, but can we work this out? Can we resolve this? Can we bring reconciliation in our relationship? That takes meekness. That takes humility. The two go together like a hat and a scarf. But sometimes it may take a while. And that brings us to the next piece of grace clothing. We're to put on long-suffering. This word long-suffering is interesting. It literally means wrath that is put far away. See, our flesh and the works of our flesh manifest itself in wrath. It's blowing up inside. Oh, that person has made me so angry. And you're just seething on the inside. 
Long-suffering, on the other hand, is placing that anger far away from you. It's the ability not to be controlled, not to be manipulated by your anger or bad temper. A true believer, a spirit-controlled believer, will put a distance between himself or herself and their anger or their enemy. See, that gives you the ability to put up with people who test your patience, who challenge your temper. The spirit-controlled believer is not manipulated or controlled by his or her anger. Let me tell you this. I am so glad that the Lord is long-suffering towards me. I mean, I can't imagine if we weren't. If we weren't, none of us would be here. I've had just enough of you, Tom. I am done with you. Poof, you're gone. That would be it. No, the Lord puts it this way in Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, these are the things we're to clothe ourselves with. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. What Paul is actually saying here is we need to put on Christ. Because Christ has shown to us over and over again tender mercy and kindness and humility and meekness and has been long-suffering towards us. Certainly, we can be that way towards each other. That's why Paul says, now that we're clothed properly, this is the way we need to be towards each other. Look at verse 13. He says, we're to be bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another... Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now, let me say this. That doesn't mean that you become a doormat and let people walk all over you all the time. But what it does mean is that when we have a complaint against another, we go and we try to work it out with that individual and work out that matter. Now, with that said, there will be some people that you just can't work things out with. And we need to realize that. We need to realize that. That's why Paul writes in Romans 12 verse 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So, uh, some people will just not have it. They'll, They'll not soften their hearts and they'll not try to work things out with you. But God says you do the right thing anyway. Regardless, so far as it depends on you, if possible, you be at peace with all men. If anyone has a complaint against you, even as Christ forgave you, so you also need to forgive them. It does you no good to hold on to bitterness. It does you no good to hold on to hatred towards the other person who is unrepentful. Even if reconciliation cannot be made because there is no recognition of wrong, you still... And you must give it over to the Lord God and make the promise of forgiveness to God. Lord, I forgive that person who has wronged me and and I'm not going to hold it against them and I'm just giving it to you, Lord. Now, if you've truly done that, it'll be evident by a lack of bitterness in your life, a lack of resentment towards that person in your life that has sinned against you. There will be that continued willingness to restore the relationship even at the slightest evidence of repentance. You see that person, oh man, I I long to have this relationship with this person. Oh, I miss this person. Do you know that when we forgive one another, that delights the heart of our Heavenly Father. 
See, forgiveness, it's not a burden that God places upon us, but rather a safeguard for our mental health and our emotional stability. That's why after uh, teaching his disciples how to pray, Jesus wanted to teach them the importance of forgiveness. He said this in Matthew six fourteen and 15, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why did Jesus teach this? Was he trying to make it rough on them? Quite the opposite. Jesus was saying, I want you to be free from holding on to the burden of, of holding a grudge. Because if you choose not to forgive, you're going to be miserable. And you're not going to enjoy the intimacy and the closeness with the Father that you would normally have if you chose to forgive. See, it's all based on forgiveness. So let me say this, if there's someone right now you're thinking of that you're bitter towards or you've been hurt by, regardless if they've asked for forgiveness, do yourself a favor and forgive them, even as Christ has forgiven you. Paul's thought here is that Christ has forgiven us so much that it won't hurt us to forgive somebody who has stepped on our toes. We're to forgive others in the same way that, that Christ has forgiven us. How did God forgive us? Christ has forgiven us totally, and he's forgiven us completely. There's no strings attached. Well, I'll forgive them if they get their lives right. I'll forgive them if they do this. No, Christ's forgiveness is genuine. Based on, on our repentance, Christ's forgiveness has nothing to do with whether we deserved it or, or not. And that's the essence of true forgiveness for anybody. Christ's forgiveness is freely forgiven. And I love that. And not only has God forgiven us for the sake of His precious Son, but He also cast our sins into the depth of the sea, the Bible says. He has put them behind His back, not to remember against us any longer. Because when it comes, because when a sinner comes to Christ and believes and trusts in Christ, God blots out every sin, every transgression, forgets every sin that person has ever committed. He's justified just as if he's not sinned. How? Based on the merits of the cross of Jesus Christ, the shed blood of Christ upon that cross. If Jesus could go through so much to forgive us, certainly we should be able to forgive one another. That's why Paul finishes up in verse 14, really with our last piece of grace clothing that we're to put on, and the most important of that is love. Look at verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is a bond of perfection. Above all things, Paul says, above tender mercies, above kindness, above humility, above meekness, above long-suffering, above bearing with one another, forgiving one another, you must have love. It's been said love is like a girdle. It holds everything in place. Man, with all this food that I've been eating, being on quarantine, this is probably the best physical article of clothing that, I, that I, I need to be wearing right now. But let me say this, spiritually speaking, it's the absolute best article of clothing to have. But above all these things, put on love, which is a bond of perfection. You know, the Bible speaks many times on, on girding our loins, girding your loins with truth, girding your loins up and, 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 and go here. And, and Peter, when you were young, you were, you gird your own self. That was a normal thing. It would be like saying, you know, like, put that belt up your pants so you, don't, you know, so you don't lose them as you walk down the street. Belt up your shorts so when you run, you don't lose your shorts. See, during this time, 
Paul, when he wrote this, they wore tunics. And they were needed, when they needed to move, when they needed to run, they would gird up their tunic, tie it up so they can move. So Paul is saying, now look, once you get all these grace clothes on, the thing that holds them all together is love. It's love that girds the believer. It's love that's the greatest thing. It's love that ties it all together. You'll never experience compassion for people unless you love them. You'll never experience kindness towards people unless you love them. You'll never know the meaning of humility and meekness unless you love them. You'll never know what it means to suffer long and to endure and to forgive unless you love. Our responsibility, our responsibility to the world that is watching us is to show them the genuine love of Jesus Christ. You know, it's almost as if Paul is saying, Here, here's another way to say all that stuff I just said. Just love everybody. Because if I really love you, then I'm going to have compassion for you, kindness towards you, humility towards you, patience towards you, forbearing towards you, and forgiveness towards you. It's that, that love that holds it all together. It's a girdle that holds everything in. Makes the bolters and bumps goes away so they don't stick out. Love gives you smooth lines. This love is distinctly Christian. It's a love that expects nothing in return. Literally what Paul is saying is put on love that has its origin and its source in God. So we've read, God has set you apart. God has forgiven you. So because of that, put on tender mercies, put on kindness, put on humility, put on long-suffering, put on putting up with one another, forbearance, put on forgiveness, put on love. Now all these things, it's not like, you know, turning on the TV and turning it off. This should be a constant attitude in our hearts each and every day by the power of the Holy Spirit working it into our lives. Because without love, what you have here is a whole lot of legalistic, moral attitudes. And if you try to generate all these attributes on your own, well, I'm, I'm determined to be meek, it's not going to work. You can't generate it. It's got to come from the Holy Spirit. Now listen, as we close, before we can reach out and love to our unsaved friends and neighbors, we must demonstrate God's love to our fellow believers in Christ. That means to your wife that you've been quarantined with for a month. That means to your husband that has taken quarantine to a whole new level by not moving off the sofa in a month. Show each other tender mercies in your home. Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, but of all things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. John put it this way in 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother who he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Everyone wants to be loved. You want to be a part of what the Bible says the church is to be. But if that is to happen, we must recognize that we each have a responsibility to put on love in our lives. Famous line from a Paul McCartney song, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. In other words, if we seek to give of ourselves to others, we give out, reach beyond that which is comfortable and easy, we'll find out that we get so much more in return. And even more importantly, the world will see Jesus as that great Savior that He truly is because they'll, they'll see Jesus in and through our lives. 
Finally, perhaps you've never experienced the love of God through the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe someone invited you to tune in online. Maybe you're together at the house. Maybe you're breaking your social distancing rules. That's okay if you're listening to God's Word. Maybe you're by yourself and you're just listening to this, this podcast, this, this, this study here, and, and you realize you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. That you're still dead in your trespasses. You're still, you're still dead in your sins. God wants you to know how much He loves you this morning. And how much He wants you to turn from your sin and turn to Him. He will forgive you. He will take your sin as far as the east is from the west. He will put your sin from you. He will forgive you. He'll give you new life. He'll give you His Holy Spirit to lead and guide you, to empower you. And then He'll give you eternity in heaven with Him. You no longer have to pay the penalty of your sin. Christ paid it for you. All you need to do is make that decision this morning. To say, Christ, I want you in my life. I want my sin forgiven. I want to give you that opportunity as we close in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and grace. Lord, thank you for your tender mercy towards us and your kindness and your humility, Lord, and your meekness and your long-suffering. Lord, thank you for bearing with us, Lord. Thank you for forgiving us. And most of all, thank you for your love towards us. God, that you sent your Son, your only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. So, Father, I pray right now, if there's anyone listening that wants to put their faith and trust in Your Son, Jesus Christ, they want to be born again today, they want to know if they were to die today, that they would go to heaven, that their sin has been forgiven through what Jesus did upon that cross. Lord, give them the faith to make that step today. And while you're sitting there, wherever you are right now, if you just pray this prayer, mean it from your heart, God will come into your life and He'll forgive you this morning. Just say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I turn from it today. Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be my God. I want to follow you from this day forward. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for accepting me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for dying for me upon the cross. I surrender my life to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, or even if you want to pray it in an hour from now, or two hours from now, I encourage you, don't wait. Lord can come back at any moment. But if you prayed that prayer, would you please message us on Facebook? Would you please message us on, on, on YouTube? Or, or even if that doesn't work, just, just send us an email to ccspringfield.aol.com. Let us know that you've made that commitment to Christ so we can be praying for you. would love to do that for you. With that, let's do one last song together. Hmm?